Today on Unleashed Cast, I talk to Paul Matthews, founder of People Alchemy. We talk about all things learning, learning transfer, learning in the workflow, and how those two things are different. Confusing? We better listen in. Paul's someone I've known for a long time. I've kept close tabs on the way his research and work has changed in learning and development over the last 10 to 15 years. Always a fascinating guy, a great speaker, never less than interesting on the subject of learning and development and performance and capability at the point of work. Something he used to talk about a great deal. Anyway, it was great to catch up with Paul. Here's our conversation. When we started, when I talked to you first, probably more than 10 years ago, you uh, a phrase that always stuck with me was about capability at the point of work. That was something that you talked about in a number of sessions that I saw at various events. Then you moved to learning transfer, and now you talk about learning workflows, which we'll come on to in greater detail um, later on. But how has your work changed then? You've obviously sort of shifted your focus a little bit. Does that mean that the way people learn has changed or have you just kind of got deeper into the analysis and and have found a better way of kind of analyzing and approaching this well then nice to be here thanks thanks for giving me a soapbox to stand on um yeah i think my thinking's changed i don't the way we learn hasn't changed i mean maybe for hundreds of thousands of years or whatever if you want to be pedantic about it but i think the way that we can help people learn the it's becoming more mature our thinking is improving around that and to some extent we're probably going back a little bit more to the way that we used to encourage people to learn even hundreds of years ago which is learning by doing learning where they're doing it learning in the flow of work even if that work was hunting at the time with a spear and a bow and arrow it's about people learning to do things while they're doing them and rather than taking them out, dumping them in a classroom, something, you know, sheep dipping them and then sending them back, thinking something or hoping that something has changed. So it, it's almost coming full circle in a way. And you mentioned that progression of some of the things I've been talking about is perhaps where my focus has been rather than my thinking has changed. And the overall focus for me has kind of always been the learning that's happening outside of the formal interventions. My first book was on informal learning after all. Um, and and then I started thinking, well, let's get clear about what we need people to to do in terms of how they do what they do at the point of work. And that was a phrase I picked up from Gary Wise, by the way, who's based over in the US, that at the point of work, which is a very critical point because it's right at that point in time and space where someone's asked to do something. Can they do it at that point? in time and space right then, given the environment that they're within and given what they bring to that point of work and what the environment brings to that point of work. So that was where that phrase capability at the point of work came from, because someone can be competent but not capable at the point of work if they perhaps don't have a spare part or don't have a bit of knowledge they need or whatever, so they can be potentially competent but in the moment not capable because of the way the environment that surrounds them. Uh, is 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 unfriendly to them doing what they want to do or are up to do. And so then that obviously started to bring on, well, if we are going to train them, how do we make sure that that training does get operationalized at that point of work to produce the kind of behavior changes that we've decided are required at that point of work? So it, all, it always comes back at that point of work. Well, that point of apply, I think, as, as Bob Mosher and Con Gottfriedson talk about there, the point of apply is a term they use in their five moments of learning needs. So there's lots of people out there talking about this, perhaps coming at it from different angles. So, so yeah, so that that's kind of 
a progression of focus more than a more than a change of thinking. I don't think it doesn't really invalidate what I was talking about years ago. And so now you're talking about uh, learning workflows, but also very keen to delineate between learning in the workflow and learning workflows. So can you tell me about how these two things differ? Well, learning in the workflow is, as I just said before, when you're out with the group hunting the elk and that, that that's in the workflow. It's when you're doing out there what you're doing and you will learn just by being around other people doing stuff better than you um, or practicing what you're doing. So that's learning while you're doing, learning in the workflow or in the flow of work. Uh, and it's... It, in many ways, it's almost a side effect of that being in the flow of work. You learn just because you're there, because you observe what happens when you do something and what and what happens when other people do something. Um, and you learn from that experience, particularly if you reflect on it and so on. What I've started to talk about is if we want to make sure that we can help people change their behavior from what they're doing to a new set of behaviors that we prefer them to do instead, then we have to focus on how do we deliver those behaviors. And the only way someone's going to change their behavior in a reliable and kind of sustained and embedded way is if they go through a sequence of actions over time to practice that new behavior, to learn a little bit about it, to watch people doing it, to reflect on it, to maybe look at a bit of e-learning, to maybe do this, maybe do that. So all of the things they will need to do over a period of time that will get them from the behavior they currently have, which we've deemed is not quite adequate to the behavior we want them to have, which is would be success in the program. So that shift in behavior will only occur when people go through that sequence of activities spread over time. You very seldom will you get a, a change in behavior that just happens overnight. Um, even if someone is told, do it this way from now on, they're still gonna have to practice it a while to get good at doing it that new way uh, at an acceptable level. And, and that sequence of actions, if you by any definition is a workflow, it is a, a sequence of things that's done and, and designed to happen over time. And so I call that a learning workflow. Perhaps a better phrase might be behavioral change workflow, but that doesn't quite trip off the tongue quite so well. And from a marketing perspective, probably doesn't resonate with learning people quite so well. So hence the term learning workflow as a, a designed entity, a, a thing that you create and design as a sequence of actions to give someone to help move them from the way they do things now to the way you want them to do them in the future. And, and that needs, as you said, delineated or disambiguated from the concept of just learning in the workflow in an ad hoc fashion when you're out there doing things as a side effect of what you're doing. So if you're designing learning workflows for various staff members of the workforce, what are the inputs, what are the behaviors that they exhibit pre-intervention that inform how these workflows are designed because i imagine uh without going into learning styles obviously everyone learns in a slightly different way or everyone's got slightly different habits or behaviors or those kind of individual personality elements to the way that they learn so how 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 deep into it do you get how specific do you get down to the individual or down to a certain cohort of an organization what um i, I think when you went that last bit where you're saying is it individual i think usually it's not initially you will have a manager of a department or a, somewhere or a team that's saying 
in general, we're not getting the KPIs that we want. In some way, the people aren't doing things in my group, in my team, in my division, in the way that I would prefer them to do them. So that's, that person, however senior they are, has a sense of disquiet about the status quo. They say people aren't doing things well enough for whatever reason, and they will have their own set of criteria or evidence that they're using, whether it's things they see, things they hear, the numbers they see on a spreadsheet or whatever it is, they'll be saying people aren't performing as well as I want them to perform. And, and their cry is, well, we need to fix performance. And they will often come up with some ideas on how they might go about doing that from management training to leadership to courageous conversations to feedback to, to whatever, a lot of which are well-intentioned but often quite frankly wrong if they come from there because a proper analysis hasn't been done. So what you've got to start with is look at what are people doing now and what do we want them to be doing instead? In other words, what would you observe or hear or notice if people have changed their behaviour in the way that you want them to? And that's starting to do what I call a behavioural needs analysis. What's the gap between the current set of behaviours, however you'd want to define them, and the future set that we want them to do instead. And how will you notice when that future set of behaviours is in place in contrast to what you've got now and what you're noticing now when they clearly are not in place? So we're looking at that behavioural gap, probably across a group of people. Now, uh, at an individual level, it, it's, we need to be talking scale here because we're normally talking numbers. So it is what is that behavioural gap and then how do you cross it? In other words, it's almost like how can you deliver those new set of behaviours to people? And that's when you can start saying, well, how do we define those behaviours in a way that we will notice when they change? And that we'll then be able to measure that change and that's usually going to be observable behaviours. So now we're into the idea of um, almost like a set of judges scoring a gymnast and holding up scorecards. You know, who's going to be able to judge whether that person or that group of individuals have changed their behaviour sufficiently to cross that behavioural gap in order to deliver the, ex you know, execute the organisational strategy effectively, um, which is clearly what that senior person wants is, is effective execution of strategy. So, so that means that we've got a, by defining those behaviours and the gap between them and where they are now and where they where you need them to be, you've actually, and do that in observable terms, then you've started to look at a decent set of measures you can use to decide, you know, when that gap is crossed and when success has been achieved or not with whatever intervention you put in place. So then you've got to start thinking, well, how do we design the intervention to get them from where they are to where you want them to be? And I sometimes use the analogy of a sat-nav here where it's got to be four things in place if you've got a sat-nav to be successful. You've got to know where you are now, where you want to be. You need a set of instructions, a turn-by-turn -turn or step-by-step -step set of instructions to get from point A to point B, and then people have to follow those instructions. So those are the four kind of critical success factors to making that work. And it's the same with a, a program that will shift people from the behaviour set they've got to the behaviour set that you're seeking to produce in that group of people. So that, that means that's how you start then designing the step-by-step, turn-by-turn instructions to get people from where they are along that learning workflow to that new set of behaviours at the other end and then applying measures to it as you go because then you can observe those behaviours to say, you know, what's our progress along that? And those workflows might run over a week or two. They might run over a year or two even, just depending on 
what you're trying to change, the complexity. And of course, the, the components of those workflows will vary immensely depending on where people are at, what the gap is, how big it is, and the particular behaviors that you're seeking to, to change and improve. Okay. I've got, um, I've got one last question, and it's about, I guess, evolution and uh, not, not the big picture of, uh, you know, homo sapiens or anything like that, but I guess the evolution of learning over the last two, three years. The obvious event that changed everything, uh, the pandemic, how has it, um, for you, changed how you've approached um, learning workflows? Because what I see from my perspective is, it's made a lot of organizations realize the importance of learning. It's made a lot of organizations realize the importance of retention and the way to retain people is to invest in them or one way to retain them. And to do that, part of it is about effective learning strategies and things like that. So has, have you seen a, a, a dramatic shift or, or, or more importance put on the work that you do, do you think, in the last couple of years? I think there was certainly a lot of dramatic shifts that took place and a lot of people went back to the LMS and started delivering content. Unfortunately, a lot of those prototype solutions that were created in a hurry at the beginning of the pandemic are still there now. And I think that's a mistake. I think also the senior teams were at one point unable to say they're not working well, put them in the classroom and give them some training, and that was no longer a valid response because they couldn't do that. And, and it gave L&D for a while quite a seat of power in terms of the ability to suggest, well, how do we deal with this? So I think it's important that learning and development recognises that and realises there is still a window to help um, them have those discussions with the senior teams and, and say, well, actually, the old way of just doing putting people in a classroom and doing some training without any kind of learning workflow wrapped around it to enable learning transfer, for example, is one way you can use learning workflows as a learning transfer tool. In fact, without some kind of learning workflow wrapped around a training course, you're almost never going to get learning transfer or not enough of it to be effective and efficient. Um, so I think there is this realisation that there's a lot more that needs to be done than just giving people content to consume. And I think a lot of people then struggle, well, yes, we know there's more to be done, but we're not sure what we've got to do or how to do that. And so what I'm trying to do is develop that kind of end-to-end -end process from a behavioral needs analysis right through to the design of the learning workflow. Some of those steps in that workflow may well be a, a session in a classroom, and sometimes it won't be. And But that depends on what it is you're trying to achieve with that learning workflow. So I think what I'm trying to do is develop this kind of end-to-end -end thinking or philosophy that will help people with that whole design process. Um, and that's what I see as an evolution is learning and development, stepping away from delivering of content either via an LMS or in a classroom and thinking outside of that, beyond that, both before and after it, to think about learning programs that are um, based on the, the idea of delivering behaviour change rather than based on, well, how many bums did I put on a seat? So let, let's focus on what we typically as L&D people want, which is a shift in the behaviour so that people do their jobs differently. It's about how they do their job that counts, not what they remember, not even perhaps what they learn, but what are they doing out there in the field and, and how can we impact that and, and I think that's the bigger picture that L&D needs to look at a lot more. 
and, and it leads to a much more powerful conversation with the, the senior executive teams as well. Because that's what they're interested in, is how, what people are doing, not what people learn, quite frankly. It's what people are doing that counts. Yeah, true. I find that a little bit sad, but I do understand it, certainly. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Paul, uh, thanks so much for your time. It'll be great to uh, speak sometime in the future to see what your latest thinking is, you know, in, in a couple of years' time. Um, we'll be speaking to you in that day. For now, much appreciated and uh, see you soon. Good to be here.